The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, we're going to chew through Acts chapter 8 this morning. And it's got several kind of little stories that I think are um, applicable to where we're at. Uh, I want to give you kind of a brief overview of where we're headed, kind of how it breaks down so you got some file folders to be able to put thoughts in and kind of categorize your thinking as we work our way through the text. Basically, Acts chapter 8 breaks down into three sections very nicely. I like threes. I believe in the Trinity. So uh, that's what we're going with. Um, in verses 1 through 8, if you want to take down kind of an outline... In verses 1 through 8, it's God over opposition. In verses 9 through 25, it's God over superstition. And verses 26 to 40, it's God over the mission. And what we're going to see as we spend time together today is we're going to see that God has always been the shepherd over his church. That, that no matter what is happening, no matter what it is that the church goes through, that God is always the one who is overseeing, caring about, whose mind is on, whose focus is, and his attention is on the church. We know this because we see it demonstrated so clearly for us in the book of Acts. But we also know this because of the great lengths that he has gone to to purchase the church unto himself through the death of his son. I mean, to put it this way, if God is willing to give his son, how could he not care about the church following that moment? If he gave the greatest gift at the very beginning to purchase redemption for his people, don't you think... And he's going to continue to desire the preservation of his people. So by way of introduction, I think it's important to kind of orient ourselves in the text a little bit. At this point in the book of Acts, it might be helpful to consider the ways in which the early church is experiencing their life in Christ. Now let's let's start with the good category because that's the one that I I think we all love to hear. and, And matter of fact, when we're going through the book of Acts, I think it's easy for us to focus on the good things in sort of uh storybook fashion, right? You, you read through the details, you say, okay, here's a high point, and here's a high point, and here's a high point, and you're, you're looking for those good moments where you see the church being victorious, and God winning, and the Holy Spirit doing awesome stuff, and people getting saved, and the church being added to, and God is winning. And there's a lot of that up until this point. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that the Holy Spirit descends upon 120 people in an upper room. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel, and a whole bunch of people get saved. 3,000 people. We've got like an instant megachurch right in the center of Jerusalem. Now what's crazy about that is instantly these early believers are being baptized. Now if you've been to the Middle East, you know that water is not readily available everywhere. And so baptism is, kind of, is not necessarily easy to navigate. So outside of the temple area, they had these baptismals. They were called mikvahs. And they were there for ceremonial purifying and for washings and, and, and that kind of a thing as people prepared to worship it by going into the temple. 
But what's amazing now, though, is that 3,000 people who are already Jewish, who already believe in Jehovah, are now being baptized not into Judaism, but into the name of Jesus. And it's happening right outside of the temple, where where pilgrims are going into the temple to worship. It's, It's in public display that people are making declarations of their faith in the kingdom of Jesus. And this is a big deal. It's, it has this, this level of tension that it, can, that it can divide a city, divide a holy city. As a result, tensions are running high, right? There's sort of the old guard of Judaism that is, you know, trying to process what is happening and, and, and very resistant to any talk of Jesus, partially because they're the ones who killed him, right? They've got to justify their position of power. And so there's conflict there. But God is still working. People are being saved. The Holy Spirit is still moving. Even in the midst of tension, gifts are being used and people are being raised up by the Lord to to go out and proclaim the gospel and widows and orphans are being ministered to and the love of God is being spread throughout the city as people meet from house to house. And they're learning about the kingdom of Jesus and what it means to live under his authority and under his rule. A whole city is being shaped by the gospel in this moment, in this season. The supernatural love of that early community is causing such amazing acts of generosity that people are literally selling their property and their houses and giving all the proceeds to care for people within the church. They're opening up their homes. They're giving away their goods. They're sharing their food. They're loving each other with supernatural affection. And it is an amazing, amazing time. Now, along with that are also difficult things. There's a a lot of difficult things that the early Christian community is experiencing as well. One, their, their leaders have been arrested and brought before the council in Jerusalem. They've been publicly humiliated and beaten. Two people, during a service where the church is gathered, were literally slain by the Spirit in the midst of the church. Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps you'll remember the story in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and the church is gathered there, Ananias comes in first and all of a sudden, because he's lying about some things and there's this hypocrisy, God brings instantaneous judgment to Ananias and he falls down dead in the moment. And then his wife comes in afterwards. She also is a part of this lie. She falls down dead as a direct act of God's judgment in the midst of the church. One of their most valued servants within the church is out proclaiming the gospel. He's being bold about his faith in Jesus. Next thing you know, he's, he's brought before the council the Sanhedrin, this group of of ruling religious people there in the city that functions kind of in a dual rule of of religious authority and and also civic authority. 
Illegally, though, they take and execute judgment on him, and he's literally stoned to death. He's, he's, he's got rocks that are piled up on him until his body surrenders life. That happened right there in their city. Somebody from their church that they know that is a respected leader and, a, and somebody that they love. And, and this signals then, at that moment, a sort of free-for-all response. Saul, who was there, decides that he really enjoys persecuting Christians. He, and matter of fact, he, he feels in the moment, he describes it later, he says, you know, I, I, I thought I was doing God a favor. <laughs> I thought I was like protecting him in some way, but I was, I was persecuting the church of God. And, and so this opens up this door where Saul feels like he's entitled to persecute Christians. And he's going from house to house, like finding out where the Christians live, pulling them out, putting such physical and emotional pressure on them that he's, he's trying to get them to recant their faith. Many of them are being taken to prison and some of them are being killed at the hands of Saul. Now, okay, now, Let's recap for a moment. It's easy. I know we can do this storybook thing where our minds kind of detach from the reality of this. So let's kind of put ourselves in it and think, of, think about this reality. You're in a church over the period of, say, a year or so. A couple of your pastors are arrested, publicly beaten, and told not to talk about Jesus anymore. Then a little while longer, you guys are gathered together. It's a time of worship. Things are happening. The Holy Spirit's moving. And all of a sudden, God strikes two people dead in the congregation. And it's known that that's a form of judgment. And then a little while longer, one of your deacons, who's a faithful guy, a very well-respected part of your community, ends up dead in the streets, having been beat to death by a crowd. How would you be feeling about attending Jerusalem Christian Fellowship in that moment? Would you be like, yeah, we're winning. Look at us. Aren't we awesome? Would you be stoked on Sunday morning like, I just can't wait to get down there and see what happens today. Maybe God's going to kill somebody else in the congregation. Are you, are, you, are you excited about being in that place? This is the kind of tension that the early church is under. And, and remember, they don't have 2,000 years of church history to look upon God's faithfulness. All they have is the present moment of what they are enduring right now and wondering, how is God going to meet us in this? What is going to happen? What will we do? They, they don't know. They haven't read Acts chapter 10 or 12, or 15, or 26. They don't know what we know. They're in it. But I want you to see that God is over it all. That's the beauty of it. They don't know, but God does. And and Satan is doing his worst to squelch 
this early movement. He wants to stop the Holy Spirit from working. He wants to stop the church from growing. He wants to stop the expansion of the kingdom. But God is even over the opposition. Listen, two things I want you to notice about this. First of all, opposition is an opportunity for God. Opposition is an opportunity for God. And second thing, if you're taking notes, opposition is an opportunity for God's people. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his, that's Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And, and they were scattered, all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to the prison. Now, a couple of things. First off, Saul, who is there at the stoning of Stephen, is, is seeing what's happening. He takes pleasure in the persecution of the church, of God's people, and he finds himself um, encouraged in persecuting the church. This begins this wave of persecution, and, and for the, the, the people that are in the early church, they, the tension in the city is thick and palpable, and many of them are like, look, uh, I love Jesus, I love his kingdom, but I can't hang here. I need to protect my family, I need to protect my life, and, and so they, like, we, gotta, we have to get out of this tension, right? The apostles, though, feel a different weight. Because the apostles are the leaders of this early movement, they feel like, man, I, I can't split. <laughs> I need to stay. Uh, I need to sort of steady the ship, if you will, and, and remind people that God is faithful. I need to stay in the spot. So they don't leave Jerusalem. They stay in that, in that place. And then it says, devout men, in verse 2, buried Stephen. So now, now here's a really interesting piece is that Apparently, these devout men, they're not explicitly named as believers, as Christians. And one commentator that I read uh, seemed to insinuate that the, the devout men were actually Jewish people who had not embraced Jesus. But by taking care of the body of Stephen, what they were actually saying or proclaiming was a sort of public repentance. We know that this was wrong, what happened. And it was illegal in those days to make mourning or to, to make lamentation, as it says here in, in Acts 8, over the death or the right death, the execution of a criminal. It was illegal in the city of Jerusalem to do that. So these guys were literally breaking the law and it was sort of an act of repentance, like we're sorry that this happened, this shouldn't have went down like this. So they make this lamentation over him and, and Saul goes out persecuting the church, dragging off men and women and committed them into the prison. Now verse four, it says this. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip, you might remember his name. It was on a list, appeared on a list in Acts chapter six, verses uh, three through six, where, where we found out about Stephen as well. Philip was one of these original deacon figures who was charged with caring for the widows in the early church 
And he was known as a man of good reputation who was faithful and full of the Holy Spirit. So Philip also, leaving the persecution in Jerusalem, flees. Now, here's the thing. Samaria is not a, um, is not a favorable place in Israel at this time. You see, 600 years pre- previous to this point in history, the Samaritans uh, were, were formed as a people when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they did is they took sort of the ruling class and the business people and those that were influential and they they took them out and transplanted them in other lands. And then they took other people from other lands and they, they mixed them into the northern tribes of Israel in the northern region north of Jerusalem. And so they would mix in these other nations to, to really cause them to lose their national identity because when your national identity is gone, you are easier to rule as a people. That was a part of their practice. So the southern kingdom, which had not been invaded by the Assyrians and had not endured that practice, always saw the northern kingdom as, as being sort of mixed race, half-breeds, they were looked down on, not as spiritual, and, and the Samaritans, they, they melded with the beliefs of other cultures, and they had their own separate, distinct worship practices, and their own mountain that they worshipped on that was not prescribed in the scriptures, and there were all these things that were part of it, and so those in Judea, in the southern part of the kingdom, looked down on the Samaritans. Now listen, here's why this is important. If you're trying to run away from persecution in Judea, Where's the place that you go? You go to Samaria. Because those in Judea don't even want to set foot in Samaria. Right? So, they take off and they go down there. But, but verse 5 tells us this. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Listen. Opposition is an opportunity for God. Opposition is an opportunity for God. The church is going through some deep, deep stuff. There's a reason that they are fleeing for their lives. Yet at the same time, this, we're introduced to this character, Saul. How many of you guys know where, where Saul's going to end up? He's going to end up on team, team Jesus. We know that, right? But the scriptures mention it because... The scriptures want to point, Luke the author wants us to see that God had set his sights on Saul. (laughs) That early on, even when Saul was at his worst, when he was at his, his darkest sin, when he was doing the most damage, that God had set his sights on Saul and already had a plan to bring him into the fold. (laughs) God saw the opposition and also saw the opportunity. It's like, oh man, what if I took a guy like that? What if I used a guy like that? What if I called him out of that rebellion, of that religious mindset? What if I saved him and redeemed him and then used him as a hardcore Jewish person to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the world? How about that? What would that say about my grace? What would that say about my heart? So God saw an opportunity to redeem through saving Saul. 
And it's interesting, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he said that he later came to regret this persecution of the church. He said, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. And then he gives the reason why. Because I persecuted the church of God. You know what the very next verse says? I didn't write it down, but I know it. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. (laughs) See, Paul is the perfect candidate to the Gentiles because Paul understands how much grace he's been given from God. Well, we're introduced to this character. We see that God sees an opportunity to redeem through saving Saul. And not only through saving Saul, but also through scattering the saints. You see, when Saul is persecuting the church, way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he told the apostles, he said, wait in Jerusalem, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But everybody kind of been hunkering down in Jerusalem, just like, like we love just being together, and we don't. It's like a small group that really is doing well and healthy. One of the things that happens, I think, sometimes with our, our huddle groups is that people are like, I really love our community, and I don't want you to mess with it. <laughs> don't break us up into smaller groups. Don't mess with it because it's super awesome, and I love going to it. And we're like, yeah, spread the health, spread the wealth right? Expand the kingdom. Think bigger than just this. Don't stay in that place. Let's, let's push beyond those borders and push beyond those boundaries and continue to invite people into this thing called the kingdom of God and the fellowship of the saints. Well, that's what's happening. Jerusalem is a 5,000 member small group and nobody wants to leave. What does God do? He uses persecution. He redeems it. He sees an opportunity. He's like, okay. This is like a, this is like a lodgepole pine in a forest fire. The seeds of the gospel are all present. They're there in the people. They're grounded. They're rooted in the scriptures. They're teaching. They're receiving the teaching of the apostles. And the, and the, and the people are there and they're receiving all of that. And, and, and they're growing in the gospel, but they're not going anywhere with it. Then persecution comes like a wildfire. And those cones full of seeds begin to bust open. And be spread around through Samaria, throughout all of Israel, all the way up north into Syria. And the gospel begins to work. The seeds of the gospel are being planted everywhere they go. They're like, they're like the Johnny Apple seeds of the gospel. Just everywhere they go, they're just talking about what God has done. They're talking about his kingdom because it's a part of who they are. It's the identity that they own. They're living in it. And through the scattering of the saints like a wildfire on a windy day, the seeds of the gospel are carried to every part. And God is fulfilling his promise that he would use them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria 
and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Not only does God see an opposition as an opportunity for him to redeem, but also an opportunity to purify. The discomfort of all of this sifts our motives, doesn't it? When you go through uncomfortable seasons, you're like, what's real? (laughs) What's necessary? What's true? I'm going to have to live out of out of what I know is true because I don't got energy for things that are a waste of my time and a waste of of my my emotional resources. And it it sifts our motives. When, When it is no longer comfortable to follow Jesus, then you can know where your heart truly is. Are we fair weather friends of Jesus? Are we all in? See, when when hard times come in our marriages, when hard times come in our families, when sickness strikes, when when there is a a, a sudden change in our lives that is dramatic and hard to endure, our motives about following Jesus really get sifted down to what is true, what do we really believe, what do we really want to live out. Another benefit of opposition and discomfort is that it reveals what we truly value. You you see, when all of a sudden all the comforts of Jesus and following him are taken away, we're, we're put into a position of asking, is he alone worth this? Is, is, is he alone my affection? Or is there something else in life that I've elevated? I see this uh, again and again a lot of times when people go through a divorce. One of the things that you'll, you'll see, it's kind of common, is that they uh, secondarily will also wrestle simultaneously with their faith. They wrestle with their faith because they go, man, if God is faithful, then then how come this happened? And if if God is good, then how come this happened? They begin asking questions about, like, why am I following him? Am I following him because he makes my life blessed? Am I following him because he makes my life good? Am I following him because he always answers my prayers and gives me exactly what I want? Or am I following him because he's the king of all kings and lord of all lords and I owe my life to him? So discomfort reveals our values. And and God sees opportunity, even in the opposition, to shape his people, to expand the kingdom, to refine their motives, and to reveal their hearts. God is working in the midst of opposition. The text goes on to tell us, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, and when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, For the unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Here's what's happening. As, As Philip is preaching, he's demonstrating through the miracles that God is doing through his hands. 
He's demonstrating that the kingdom had both physical and spiritual authority. That lame people could walk because Jesus is king. That demon-possessed people could be freed because Jesus is king. Because he holds all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the beauty of this. As, as, Peter, excuse me, as Philip is just proclaiming this, God is demonstrating it before the eyes of the Samaritans. And people are getting saved and radically changed. See, opposition is not only an opportunity for God, but it's also an opportunity for God's people. It's an opportunity to grow in, in fleeing persecution and stepping out from sort of the protection of the apostles there in Jerusalem. Now they're, they're being thrust out into the world where they have to live out their faith. And they are going to grow as a consequence of that. Philip is a great example of this. He goes, and just everywhere he goes, he's like, hey, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm the same guy in Jerusalem as I am in Samaria. Nothing changes in my life. Doesn't matter where you stick me. Have you guys ever heard the, the definition of a fanatic? A fanatic is somebody who, who uh, can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Right? That's Philip. He's a fanatic. Can't change his mind. Jesus is king. He won't change the subject. Everywhere he goes, he's talking about it. It's an opportunity for God's people. Listen, opposition is an opportunity for God's people to grow. It's an opportunity to stand like the apostles did and say, hey, look, we know that it's heavy here, but we're going to stay here because we believe that what Jesus is doing is important. And so we're, we're going we're to plow through this and, and, and remind people that Jesus is king no matter what is going down around us. And opposi- opposition is an opportunity for God's people to speak. To grow, to stand, to speak. Philip speaks the other people who flee persecution speak they talk about jesus listen one of the things that i think is interesting yesterday we did the um feed my starving children event and um so we're there and and jason is making the announcement for, for different groups of people to go and go to the tables and set up things and he says heritage christian fellowship and so we all stand up and it was like this awkward moment because of what went down last week right and we're all sort of silently somberly walking to our tables and like oh this is heavy right and we're like, should we be proud of that name? And how do we feel about this? And, and what do we think about who we are as God's people? Is, is like heritage like a dirty name because we're, we're having to face some sin? I would say no. <laughs> I would say even more than that. We right now have an opportunity as a body of people to speak the gospel with authority in a way that we have not had. God has given us a platform to demonstrate his love in very tangible ways in the way that we love each other and the way that we hold to what we say is true about the gospel. And church, uh, I, I don't think we should be ashamed. I think, as a matter of fact, we might, in a culture that is dismissive of sin, in a culture that, that, that pushes against 
any sort of you know, public dealing with anything and a culture that, that says, hey, you can't make anybody feel bad. Those are the rules. We have an opportunity to say, listen, the gospel frees us to face anything. The gospel frees us to be honest about our hearts and where we struggle. And this is going to purify us. It's going to continue to shape us as God's people. And in all kinds of redemptive ways, the opposition that we are experiencing as a body of believers, the opposition that our brother Jeff is experiencing, is for our good. It's for God's purpose in our lives. And we can grow through it, we can stand in it, and we can speak through it to a world that desperately needs to hear that Jesus is a worthy Savior. Second piece of this, he's not only God over opposition, but he is God over superstition. God over superstition, verses 9 through 25. But there was a man named Simon who, was previous, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, that's the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Hey, let me pause real quick. I just need to offer something that will help clarify this, this portion right here a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is uh, commonly debated is what do we do with portions of Scripture where we see that the Holy Spirit did not get given to a group of people until the apostles laid hands on them like this passage here. And there are, there's another one in the book of Acts as well. What, what did that mean uh, does that mean that there's this second experience of the Holy Spirit and is, is there sort of a, uh, an epi or coming upon experience? There's probably five different interpretations of what we should do with this passage. I think all of them are wrong. I'm going to give you mine. <laughs> Feel free to look them up. You can Google that business and, and look what those different things are. But here's what I think is really happening. You see, the apostles are still in Jerusalem and they're, they're separate from what's happening up in Samaria. By the apostles having to come and see for themselves, and then them laying hands on the believers in Samaria, and then the Holy Spirit coming upon them, what's happening is God is authenticating that the same work in Jerusalem is also the same thing that God is doing in Samaria. And we'll see this pattern repeated in Acts chapter 10, when Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile believer, to be saved. 
We'll see that the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and that is the authentication. When they have this council that takes place later on in the book of Acts to decide, what, what do we do with all these Gentiles that are not Jewish people that are getting saved? Should we make them Jews first before they become Christians? How, how does that work? And the early church is trying to figure that out. And, and Peter says, look, the same Holy Spirit that was given to us was given to them. God did it. What else are we supposed to do? He did it without making them Jews first. He did it sovereignly by his own choice. I think we got to go with God on this, right? So I, God is authenticating the work that he is doing in other places outside of Jerusalem, outside of what has happened there. Now, moving through the, the text a little bit further, they la- then they laid their hands on them, verse 17, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of uh, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, "May your silver perish with you, because you could you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter." If your heart is not right before God, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay, so here's the thing. God is God over superstition. Simon the sorcerer had a view about God. That was something he pulled out of his previous experience with magic and tricks and and sorcery and whatever power he had experienced before. He just was like... This has a power and this has a power. This power looks better and bigger and greater and so I, I want that. But here's, here's the, the real problem. The, the superstitious view of the gospel is this, is that it's a tool to use. It's a tool to use. Listen, the gospel is what I preach to have influence, to have money, to have power, to have authority. The the gospel is what I wield so that people will love me or look up to me or follow me or, 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 or whatever, right? So that I can finally have the jet and the lifestyle that I want. The gospel is not a tool to be used. It is the power of God unto salvation. The superstitious view of the gospel says it's a tool to use. It says that it's a means to an end. Did you catch back at the very beginning of this, this portion of scripture? It says in verse 9, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least into the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. The next verse says, Because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. Now, here's the thing. For Simon, seeing the power of God changing lives and being a part of that was a tool to get what he wanted before he got 
exposed to the gospel. That is the accolades of people, the attention of people. And so it was just like this thing that he, was, he, he, he said, okay, well, I, I, I got what I wanted here by the use of this power. Well, now I can get what I need here by the use of this power. He saw the gospel as a means to an end. Man, we know that that's not true. The gospel is not a means to an end. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's how God saves people. It's not how we get our best life now. It's how we come to know God the Father. It's how we receive the Holy Spirit. It's how our hearts become fully alive and our lives begin to change and we are shaped in the image of God's Son. The gospel does all that in us. So the superstitious view of the gospel says it's a tool to use, it's a means to an end, to feed the me monster. Simon's drug in this instance was influence, but there are a whole host of things that we can look at throughout history from from the papacy and power and money and you look at the televangelists, preachers and teachers who are using the gospel to fleece God's people. The gospel does not serve the purpose of the individual life. The gospel is the means by which God is redeeming the world. He thought... Not only that it was a tool to use and a means to an end, but he thought it was a trick you can buy. Hey, I see that you're, you're doing something with your hands there. You're laying your hands on people, and then magic stuff happens. So it's like, hey, if I, if I slide you 50 bucks, can you show me how to do that so that I can wield that kind of power so I can have all the things that I've wanted? <laughs> Peter just turns around, rebukes him straight up. He's like, you have a wrong heart. You better pray that if by God's infinite mercy he might forgive the intent of your heart, you sorcerer, you liar. It's a tool to use. It's a means to an end. It's a trick you can buy. It's a power you can wield. He thought, I just want to be able to do what you're doing and have influence over individual lives in this way. Peter says, no, your heart's wrong. The correct view of the gospel is this. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the reality of a king on a throne who has authority over his people. It's not a tool. It's not a means to an end. It's not a phrase that we throw out. It's not a trick you can buy. It's not a power that you wield. Now, I want to make a note real quick too here on Simon. The question of like, is he saved or not? Or was he, did he really have an encounter with the Lord? Because in verse 13 it says that even Simon himself believed and after was baptized and continued with Philip, saw the miracles. Now, everyone wants to debate, was he saved, was he not saved? I just, I just want to say this. We don't know, the text doesn't tell us. We don't know whether or not he was caught up in sin or whether or not he was an unbeliever. We don't know. But this is what we do know. True repentance is lived out over the long haul. 
See, that, that, that's just the reality of it. Simon said right words. He followed the right people. He did the right things. But true repentance is lived out over the course of time. It is, to quote the words of one pastor, it is long faithfulness in the same direction. Now, the beauty of that is this. We can have moments in our own struggle with the Lord where we're up and super spiritually high and we're on the mountaintop. And then we can have other moments where we're low and we're wrestling with doubt and fear and we're like, is God in this? And does he love me? And does he see me? We might be having ups and downs in any given moment. But the question is, trajectory-wise, is our repentance being lived out over time? What we say, is it congruent with our words over the course of time? It's not measured in a flash in the pan, but it is the slow-burning coal that consumes us wholly. When we are repentant, it takes over all of our lives. It causes us to examine our motives and to think about our thoughts even to think about what happens in our hearts and to think about what that looks like to live that in the presence of God. Simon needed to live out his repentance and make sure that his lifestyle reflected his words. Lastly, but certainly not least, he's got over the mission. I'm going to read through this very quickly and make a couple of short notes. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, verse 26, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this Ethiopian eunuch had had exposure to the God of the Bible, to Yahweh, and to Judaism. And he had converted to Judaism at some point, was coming to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's on his way home. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, verse 28. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So somewhere he got a hold of a scroll that had copies of the words of the prophet Isaiah. And he's in his chariot, Riding along, maybe his driver's doing all the work, and he's kind of kicked up against the side of his chariot, and he's reading from this scroll. And then the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, hey, do you you understand what you're reading? (laughs) I love this. I mean, just think about this in like a modern day setting. Like somebody's in their car and then, they have the windows down and the Bible is coming over their MP3 player. But they look confused. So at a stoplight, you just lean over and say, hey, do you understand what that's saying? And then they're like, no, I, I don't. I just, I need somebody to explain it to me. So you guys pull over and you have a conversation about the God. That's, the, that's like what's happening. Only better than that, they're in a chariot and Philip is like running up alongside of this chariot. Hey, Do you understand what you're reading? I mean, it's a crack up. What obedience, though, on the part of Philip, right? 
to hear what the Spirit's speaking to him and just go for it, just do it. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless, any, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. He's reading Isaiah 53, a classic, very pointed portion of Scripture about the Messiah and his suffering death. (laughs) That's the portion. And like the scroll of Isaiah, do you know how long that is? I don't either. But it's long, okay? It's a big one, okay? And he's at the exact portion that talks about the death of the Messiah. And, and Philip's like, oh, this is just like a... And the eunuch said to Philip about... Excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah, in verse 34. And the... And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this is, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, what did Philip do? He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Fanatic! (laughs) Can't change his mind, won't change the subject. Every town he goes to, he's talking about the same thing. Now here's the thing that I want you to see. A couple of Quick notes about this. God is the God over mission. Verses 26 to 28, God sees the eunuch. He sees him in his chariot all by himself, driving through the desert on his way back to Ethiopia. God sees him and wants him to be saved. So he sends one guy into the middle of the desert where nobody is. Then when that guy sees the chariot, the Holy Spirit says to him, go catch up to that. I don't know what that looked like, but I'd love to see the footage when I get to heaven. Philip's like, okay. He runs up alongside the chariot. At the exact moment that that guy is reading from Isaiah a prophecy about Jesus. And he's like, gosh, I just wish somebody could explain it to me. And Philip's like, I think I could do that. It's so awesome. God sees. God sends, verse 29, he sends Philip. God speaks through his word, the gospel, and through his servant explaining what the words mean. By the way, I think one of the things that can keep us from being evangelists is we just don't know the Bible. We just don't study it. We don't look at it. We're not equipped. I I just got to encourage us as a church, like soak in the scriptures Get to know the words. And, and, and I, I'm going to just throw this out. It's a total side note. It's a freebie. I'll just give it to you for free. I, I, there is something about a paper book over the digital thing on your phone. 
I think it's the constant scrolling piece. It It does not stick in your memory. But when you read, you get an actual paper Bible and you open that up. Now I'm not... You're not a heretic. You're not less than Christian if you, ha- if you use your phone all the time. But I'm just going to tell you, it, it will stick in your brain so much more. There's the, like the tactile piece, its orientation, where it's at on the page. You'll start to get familiar with the scriptures if you just open the book and read it. Well, I'm way over time, as always. God sees, God sends, God speaks. God saves the Ethiopian eunuch, verses 36 through 39. And then verse 40, this is my favorite part. You ready? Ready? Verse 40. And then God starts it all over again. He takes Philip from that spot, puts him in the next city, and says, Philip, do it again. And then he moves him to the next city, and he says, okay, Philip, now do it again. And he moves him to the next city, and he says, okay, now Philip, do do it again. Do what you've been doing it and just keep doing it and do it all over again, again and again and again. Guys, listen, this is how the gospel spreads. The servants of God take the word of God and we just keep talking about it everywhere we go. This is how God saves. This is how God works. Somewhere, somewhere where along the line you ended up here as a result of somebody faithfully declaring the scriptures, somebody faithfully telling you about Jesus, somebody faithfully walking you through the gospel. That's how you ended up here. God has no plan B. There is no neon sign appearing in the sky in the future. God's plan has always been plan A, imperfect people with a perfect message. The power of God unto salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. As Anthony and his team come up to encourage us to respond to you in worship, I just pray, Father, that our hearts would be united with yours that you would shape us through your word, that as we respond to you in love and affection, giving our hearts to you, that the truth of what we've talked about would be equipping to us, challenging us, shaping us for your glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us and you're going to continue to lead and that you are indeed God over all. As we walk this out together, have your hand upon us as your people. Have your hand upon the Hensley family. Have your hand upon all those who are affected by this. And God, may every ounce of the sorrow here be redeemed for your glory and for your purpose. We ask this in the mighty and holy name of Jesus.